0: Hey everybody, and welcome back to The One Thing Podcast. I'm Chris Dixon. At The One Thing, and on this podcast, we're on a mission. We're on a mission to help you transform how you view, set, and achieve your goals. And we do this with our proven system. We believe that if you have clarity on who you are and who you want to become, what you believe in and your values, you'll know your purpose. And if you know your purpose, you can prioritize the things that matter most and what you should say yes to so that you can live a life of productivity towards achieving your big goals. And we are very excited because April of 2023 is a special month for us here at The One Thing. It marks the 10-year anniversary of the release of The One Thing book. And over the years, we've heard many times, I've read the book and I wanna know more. I wanna learn how I can live the one thing in my daily life. So we're very excited to announce that in the month of April, we're going to be launching a new workshop we call the Foundations of the One Thing. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, or you've read the book and you wanna learn how you can bring these concepts and these principles to your life, come check us out this April on the 27th at 10 a.m. Central. If you wanna learn more about the Foundations Workshop and check out theonething.com. Here on The One Thing Podcast, to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the release of The One Thing book, we're going to highlight some of our greatest hits episodes. And on this week's episode, we're going to highlight one of my favorites. And it's episode 325 with Dan Sullivan. He talks about the gap in the game.
1: Dan, I'm excited to have this conversation right off the bat. How would you describe what is the gap and
2: what is the gain? Yeah, this uh, was something that, first of all, I suffered from. So, so, first of all, I'm kind of a high achiever, I've always been ambitious. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm in my 47th year as an entrepreneur. And uh, I'm 77, and my goals at 77 are much, much bigger than they were. 25 years ago there was a huge problem that I had and then I coach entrepreneurs so I've coached personally about 6000 entrepreneurs in our strategic coach program uh, where we have other you know we have 17 other coaches so all together we're at about the 21,000 mark of total number and active we at any given time we're between 2500 and 3000 and these are born achievers i mean the the the, they they they, you know they they come from the factory with already they are ambitious they're achieving you don't have to teach them about motivation you don't have to teach them about goal setting and they and it shows up very early it shows up oftentimes before they're 10 years old they're out making money they're out creating new things and um you know, I, while other people are having dates, they're they're out. Um, you know, creating products and creating services, and they ca- they have an indifferent relationship with the educational system. Education never, you know, they never talk about you know where they went to college or how much education they had. But they're they are uh, they're very self motivated. They they have uh, they're driven by freedom. You know, they want they want control of their time. They want control of their future. And they get there, and they're really successful. And from the outside, and you've known them, Jeff, because you work them with them just as much as I do. Um, you know, uh, from the outside, they've got everything in the world to be, you know, to be proud of. They're role models to other people, but they just missed all the classes on being happy. So what I've discovered, it has to do with measurement. There's a way that they're measuring what they're doing that makes them always unhappy. And it's like a switch in their brain that you switch it one way and they're unhappy, switch it the other. they're just as productive, they're just as achieving, but they're happy so the way I look at it I've got a a new book called "The Gap and the Gain," in a collaboration with Dr. Ben Hardy and uh Strategy and Packaging by Tucker Max and a uh, uh, great great uh, publisher Reed Tracy at uh, Hay House, so it's been a really Terrific trip over the last two years. But um, what uh, what uh, I came across, and it was a particular incident in a particular workshop around 1993. And I had this guy who was a film producer, and he was terrific. And he was affiliated you know with really, really big names in the television industry and the film industry. And he we work in workshops in Strategic Coach, and he came in. And I know, because I knew him personally, he had a great quarter. And he said, I didn't get anything done. He said, I didn't get anything done. I'm not where I want to be. And I said, you know, I got to get a handle on this right away. And uh, I'm um, kind of very intuitive. You know, I kind of get what's going on. But I'm also... uh, I'm sort of a skilled layout artist, and I can draw pictures of what other people are thinking. And I just put a diagram. I said, this is your brain. Uh, yeah, I'll call him Dave for the, the purpose of the conversation. I said, this is your brain, Dave. And we all have ideals. Uh, we always have ideals of who we're, we're going to be in the future. And I said, so you have an ideal of who you want to be and what you want to be. And you're right now, you're at the starting point and you're going to set goals to achieve that ideal and you achieve the goals. And I've seen you achieve it. You come back quarter after quarter and I know you've achieved your goals. But what you're doing is when you achieve your goal, you measure against the ideal and it's like measuring against the horizon. You're no closer to the horizon. I said, you're measuring, Ron. So then I went over to the other side. So there's, the, there's Mr. Potato Head in the middle, diagram. And then over to the right hand, there's an ideal, and there's a starting point, and there's an achievement. And I said, this is the way you do it. You start here, you achieve it. And when you achieve it, you turn around and you measure backwards. I said, happiness is only created by measuring progress backwards. You cannot measure progress forwards. And it just hit. The diagram was right. And the only person in the room who didn't get it was Dave. (laughs) 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 You know? It was just one of those instant hits. Like I create a lot of thinking tools and, you know, some of them are good for a quarter and some of them are good, but this one just hit, you know? And um, I, I think why it hit is because it's not about entrepreneurs. It's just about being a human being. Mm-hmm. That Eight billion people do this one way or the other every day, you know? And I think that's why it hit. And then Ben came along, Ben Hardy and Ben's, you know, um, organizational psychologist. So he had all the, you know, he had all the psychological background and the concepts. So he supported that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's enormous amounts of research on this subject. And you know that too, I mean, just from the one thing and you're, you know, the thing, you can see these enormous achievers and you say they don't have any reason in the world to be unhappy, but they're just totally young know, they think they're failures, they think that you know they're disappointed with themselves and the, you know and everything. and i said, what 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 is what a weird thing that you can be so good, and especially Americans. I mean, if you can't be happy in america, I, I don't I don't know, you know, with the support for achievement and the rewards for achievement. And I said, what a terrible way to spend your life. So I, I turned around and I had to learn it myself because I was doing that. And I'm pretty good. You know, I don't I don't so I call when you're measuring yourself wrongly being in the gap. And when you're measuring properly, you're you're in the gain because you're measuring what you gain. So I've been doing, you know, teaching it for 25 years, and uh, people say, you know, you must not go into the gap at all. And I said, not more than four or five times a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll five. dive in. We'll but into I only this. go for a minute, you know, and then I can feel what I'm doing. I turn around and cry. It's like course correction when you're sailing, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, when I first heard of this idea, I immediately reflected back on my life. And I thought back to, um, it was November of 2019. I was in Seattle. We were about to host our couples goal-setting retreat that we facilitate every year. And Jay and I were sitting having lunch, and it was at that lunch that I realized it was inevitable that by the end of the year, I was going to achieve a significant goal that I had set around net worth that I thought would take a career to get to. And it was inevitable. It was going to happen by the end of the year. And the moment I realized it, Dan, I thought about I had moved the goalpost. Because I realized, oh, well, I was thinking too small. I immediately saw the ideal and felt discontent. And it was like, oh my gosh. So there's where you start. There's the ideal, which is way out there. And then there's your goal that's in the middle. We achieve the goal. And if you measure against the ideal looking for it, you are destined to be unhappy. Yet if you actually stopped and look backwards and said, look how far I've come, you find happiness. Why do you think it is? That at least for achievers, which is the people listening to this podcast, where why, why is it that we don't look backwards at how far we've come and celebrate that?
2: Yeah, you know, I think there's um, there's what I can say that you know there's twenty uh, percent of the answer is just idiosyncratic; it's just peculiar to the individual. But I think there's an eighty percent that's shared in common. And I think the eighty percent has to do with the fact that um, we're born without a three-dimensional sense and we're born without a time sense. okay, so this is a learned skill on the part of babies, and um, you know it takes uh, uh, we know that we know from research that children are born blind and regain their sight uh, like they're you know <laughs> let's say they're fifteen years old and they they get their sight back. It takes them about a year and a half to uh, grasp what three dimensionality is. So we know it's a learned skill. I mean, the brain has the built in capability to learn it like we do with math and we do with language. And, but but uh, three dimensionality, and you're bumping into things and you're miscalculating, you know, as a child. And then when you get outside, you, there's this thing called the horizon. And we're pretty good with that. I mean, we get a, we're get we okay with that. We don't have emotional trauma by the fact that we can't get to the, you know, with, with the uh, physical space, you know, actually coming to space. And I think it's a mental construct, you know, the horizon. There isn't actually a horizon. It's something that's constructed in the brain that gives you a sense of perspective of what's a, an achievable goal distance-wise right ahead of you. And we're okay with it, you know, that when we get to the the place we're headed toward and we measure against the rise and it doesn't cause us trauma, and then we measure backwards and of course we feel good. But there's something about time which is harder to grasp, uh, you know. Uh, um, uh, I think our time sensor is more unique. I think everybody does something different with the past and I think everybody does something different with the future so i think that there's less less of a common understanding of how we uh uh, uh come to grips with time uh, distance you know you get punished physically if you <laughs> if you miscalculate um you know space but uh with time and one of the problems is that um we're born with different uh, uh, vastly different abilities to visualize the future uh and uh, and You would know from living with yourself. uh, How old are you, Jeff, now? I'll be 36 in November. That's still legal to be 36? I know, right? (laughs) Anyway. So anyway, but you know that there was a point when you were growing up that you just realized that you had way more ambition than other people. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe in your family, you know the biggest. I,
1: I actually know. I actually know exactly when it was in elementary school. I remember going to my mom one night and asking the question, like comparing myself to other people, and asking why is it that I'm so different.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I would say it's essentially that you have unusually vivid uh, capability to picture yourself in the future.
1: It's almost a problem because I, my wife and I, 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 I literally can visualize it but it disconnects me from the present.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and the problem is uh you know with it, that I've discovered in myself because I, you know, I I grew up on a farm and I never had any playmates my own age until first grade. So I um yeah. you know, I I cracked the adult code when I was about 4 or 5 years old. I just learned how to Discuss with adults, and I—I I was talking to adults who had been in the First World War, who had been in the Roaring Twenties. I was born in '44. I was born just before Normandy, the invasion of Normandy. Big, you know, big things happening in the world. So these were people who had been through the Great Depression. They had been through the Second World War, and it was so fascinating to me, uh, you know, to talk about them. And I had this great question when I was about six years old. And I would meet somebody who was thirty or forty years older than me, and I'd say, "When you were my age, I'm six years old. What was going on in the world?" And I could keep an adult going for two hours. Hmm. But what what I realized was that the, that adulthood was about doing big things, you know. And, and uh, so when I got to you know grade school, I, I never um, um, I never experienced a lot of social uh, peer pressure because uh, I wasn't really interested. They didn't have any experiences. You know, they didn't have it. Any... So I, I was always wanting to be an adult. You know, I, I wanted to get out there in the world and do, um, you, know, you know, adult things that I had learned about in my conversations. But the big thing is that uh, it makes you <laughs> very non-understandable to other people. Okay. And you have to drive yourself because you're not getting uh, encouragement. In the normal way, from parents necessarily, or from teachers or other mm-hmm. adults, uh, because you know you probably at fourteen were much more ambitious than forty-year-olds that you're meeting, or mm-hmm. you know, twenty-six-year-olds, and so you feel that it's a twenty-four-seven job to keep in to keep um, uh, you know tight rein on yourself and drive yourself, and that if you let up. You, you you won't get to where you want to go. So I think there's a self-driving thing that comes in with high achievers. And there's part of them that doesn't trust themselves. That if I don't drive you, you're going to stop. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: I wanted to go to... You shared how often you end up focusing on the gap versus mm-hmm. the gain. It's, it's every day. And ever since I've become aware of this idea, I've become more aware of... When I go to the gap, mm-hmm. trying to shift to the gain, what has that process looked like for you?
2: Yeah, well, there's a, there's a couple uh, practices. I mean, one of them is a daily practice, and we actually have a free app on the App Store, which is called uh, Win Streak. And what it does, it's just on your phone, and at the end of every day, you um, you describe the day as three wins. Regardless of what happened, you find the three wins for the day, and they'll be in different places. And uh, you do that, you know, you do it before going to bed. And then before you do that, you can project to the next day what are going to be three wins tomorrow that are even better than the three wins you had for day. And it becomes a habit. I mean, you do it, and it's got a 30-day backwards, 30-day backwards, so you can see your wins for... uh, and uh, it's really interesting. that, And uh, one of the things is that, uh, you know, our entrepreneurs um, have, um, on average, they, they have more children than the normal population. So I would say in our, our um, you know, in our 2,000, 2,500 clients, on average, they have about three kids. And that includes people who don't have any kids at all. So, I mean, we've got... Uh, you know, we've got people with ten kids, eleven kids, twelve kids. You know, I mean, it's very, very unusual. Uh, but they're check, they're big check writers. They, you know, I mean, children are expensive these days. Oh yeah, and, you know, and uh, they 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 make the kind of money where they can have the size family they want. And what entrepreneurs really worry about uh, was, uh, for the most part, they're self they're self made individuals. Okay, and they have this thing, you know, when I have kids, my kids are not going to go through what I went through. <laughs> and I said, well, what did you go through that you don't want your kids to go through? And they said, well, you know, I I really, I I was in a state of risk all the time. You know, I, I had to work long hours. I had to work uh you know, uh, I had to, you know, and, and they, they tell about five or six things that are classic entrepreneurial, you know, you know, you, you're you betting on yourself and you don't know whether it's a good bet and, you know, and uh, you don't know if, it, you know, you you got the pay, the, the money for the payroll for yourself, for your team, and you don't know if your family is solvent and you go through this. And I said, well, what did all that do for you? I know it was bad when you went through it, but looking back, mm-hmm. what, what was about that? And I said, "Well, it made me really tough. You know, it made me really, you know, really confident and everything else." And I said, "So you don't want your kids to be that way?"
1: <laughs> I know.
2: And so what I say is, look, let's let's uh, get a solution to this right away. Every night when uh, you know your family's together have dinner. I said, first of all, you may need to do a new habit, but every night you have dinner. I mean, there's exceptions, but every night have dinner. And dinner has a dinner has a ritual. And the ritual is everybody talks about their three wins for the day. And he's, and the kids will say, oh, dad, there was not. and I said, doesn't matter. Just stay with them. Okay. Don't have to have three, but you have to have one. And, uh, you know, with, within a couple of weeks, they'll have three. And then they're hooked for life, and they won't let you get um, go anywhere or do anything until everybody talked about their three wins because it's dopamine. You're pumping dopamine when you do that, and dopamine's a drug, you know? Yeah. And, they, and it's a good drug to be... And uh, if you get your children uh, on this really early, they become immune to a lot of the social media, you know, the toxicity. I mean, this uh, man, I, I have to tell you... Um, I'm really happy I was a teenager in the 1950s compared with what teenagers have to put up with. And it's all self-comparison stuff. It's idealistic, you know, fantasy, uh, you know. And I, I think it's devastatingly hard uh, to uh, maintain a real sense of confidence when you have all this visual comparisons you know and mm-hmm. and the stuff yeah and the, it's not real you know this is made up stuff that they're projecting and everything so i think this is a life skill that's uh, you know i think from now on in the world we live in i think this is a fundamental life skill yeah. just how you measure how do you, how do you how do you create happiness out of your your daily progress i, I think it's a fundamental life skill
0: Well, what I love about
1: it, Dan, is the simplicity. I mean, every person listening to this can resonate with not stopping and smelling the roses, constantly just looking to the next goal and the next one and saying, I'll be happy when I achieve this versus asking, what have I accomplished? How far yeah. have I come? What was my win today? What am I grateful for? What do I appreciate about this situation? A simple question can actually change the world as you see it because it's like putting on a different set
2: of lenses. Yeah. 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 It does, you know. And the thing is, um, you've probably experienced this, mm. but how you treat yourself, you tend to treat other people that way. So if you set things up that you can't win, you you more or less set things up so that other people can't win either. You know? mm. And so, and so we in our uh, company, so we, uh, you know, we've grown a lot, but we have about 120 team members. We're mostly you know Toronto, Chicago, London, England. We're in LA, you know, where we do our workshops, and you know they're spread out from just out of college to um, you know. I'm the oldest, you know i'm seventy seven, but it's fifty year you know I got a fifty year gap. and every meeting that we have at strategic coach for any reason at all, you always start off the meeting where everybody has to say what they're excited about. Hmm. you go around, you know if there's eight people, it may take five minutes, ten minutes, yep. you do the meeting and when the meeting's over, you can say, what did I like most about that meeting? You start and finish everything with a, you know with a measurement you know measurement uh and the reason is because you don't know where people have been before they came to the meeting
1: <laughs> that's super interesting
2: yeah and it just keeps uh it just keeps everybody kind of grounded and kind of positive and you know and um everything and it's been especially important because we've been virtual now for 19 months you know so we're you know it'll be january because there different jurisdictions have different roles you know And so Canada is really, really buttoned down. It's really locked down, but, uh, you know, but, you know, but you have to keep there. Yeah. I mean, the number one job of an entrepreneur is keep everybody's confidence up, you know, that's really, Hmm. that's, that's my number one rule is you just make sure that people feeling confident, you know, and then they, you, you know, you get a sense of momentum, you know, and uh, it was especially important because we, you know, we were an in-person workshop program for since 1989, and then it was taken away from us. You know, and we had to flip in three months and we split virtual. And this year is a better sales year than the year before COVID. We really, we've really had a great sales year. But I tell you, we really had to hustle and you had to keep everybody's daily confidence up.
1: Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about people. You have another book called Who, Not How. Not How, which, yeah. Which um, I've read and really enjoy because my very first day on the job, November 1st, 2015, oh. Gary was hosting a mastermind for some of the top agents within Keller Williams. And he gets on this document camera and just starts doodling. And he draws two org charts, one on the left, a CEO, five direct reports, and writes the number six at the bottom six people. And he draws a line down the middle. On the right, CEO, five people. But then those five people have five people. And he just, he writes 200,000 below it. He was drawing out Keller Williams. And he asked, what's the difference that made the difference between these two organizations? And all these people shared these ideas. And he just drew a box around the five people that reported to the CEO on the 200,000 org chart. And he said, it's who you're missing. Anytime in your life you're hitting a ceiling of achievement, you're missing a person. Mm -hmm. If you can master finding that person and bringing them into your world, you'll be extraordinarily successful. And this has been something that you've been teaching for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So walk us through the idea. Yeah, well,
2: uh, just a little life experience. I had a friend in 1980 who was elected to the Canadian Parliament. So the uh, Canadian government works a bit like the British government. It's parliamentary. So you have prime minister and you don't actually elect the prime minister. You elect your, you know, your local guy. And then whoever's got the most local seats becomes the prime minister. So, and he wasn't even from the party that I'm uh serial, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I don't vote for the party, but he was my friend and I helped him. I've, 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 I've got pretty good, um, uh, uh, political campaign skills. I'm a good writer. I'm a pretty good strategist and everything. So I've been, I got a client who's running for the Senate in North Carolina uh, next November, and he's been in the program for 12 years. So I, I showed him how to get into Congress. He won his congressional seat uh, twice, and then he was unopposed his third time because he was really good. Now he's running for the STEM. So I'm pretty used to it. Never want to do it myself. But I I like, uh, it's interesting. You meet all sorts of interesting people in politics that you wouldn't ordinarily meet. And it's interesting. And it's kind of entrepreneurial, you know, it's win or lose. It's uh, really. uh, And uh, so anyway, but he uh, got up there and uh, he got immediately a position to do a new report for the Canadian government investigating all the improvements that could be made with disabled and handicapped people. And this was a, one of those UN uh, you know, UN year of the handicapped and disabled. So every country did it. And uh, so um, I suggested that um, we treat it like People magazine and that we interview uh, in the report and we have photographs and, and you just interview people in such a way that the photographs don't show their disability. You just have their words. And you see that they're completely normal in terms of how they think and how they talk. They've just got this you know limitation, and they have this restriction. OK And it was a huge success. It's actually the the significantly the most successful parliamentary report in terms of what actually happened out of it in the history of Canada, and it was so successful that they banned anybody else doing it the way we did. <laughs> you know, oh, huh. You you create an interesting report and, you know, we're obligated to it. We don't want to do that, you know. (laughs) So anyway, long story short, but as I was doing it and I went across the country and I interviewed 40 different situations. In some cases, you couldn't interview the person, you know, who was mentally disabled and you'd interview their parents or autistic parents, autistic uh, children. But I I was thinking as I was fine, I said, you know, um... There, these people are just disabled and handicapped in a more obvious way, but I said there's all sorts of things if you put me in certain work situations, having to do certain uh, activities i be, I would be just as disabled as they would be. okay, so I came up with a concept out of that, didn't put it right into my coaching, but it was that everybody's born with a unique ability, okay? and it's It it can consist of not more than about three activities that are sort of stacked, and uh, when you do this, uh, Jeff, uh, you're in your sweet zone, and there's no work to this whatsoever. It just comes naturally. You're just great at it, and um, yeah, you know, and it's energizing to you when you do it, and uh, (laughs) it seems seems almost like magic to other people that you can just do this and everything else, but um the way the educational system is constructed you can uh not take it seriously you cannot take it seriously because the educational system tries to make everybody well rounded you have to be you have to do good you know for your sat's and get into college you know you have to do this and this and this and i say yeah but when you get out into the marketplace uh, after the college, you're only going to get rewarded for where you're great, but you may have been taught that you can't focus on that or anything like that. And I said, um, you know, but entrepreneurs um, aren't uh, necessarily controlled by the normal system because they're not going to be employees for the rest of their life. So I said, probably the way an entrepreneur starts off and the way they form their first business They're kind of in their sweet zone. They just haven't mastered yet the money-making side of it, and they just haven't done it. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm strictly a front-stage guy, you know, and so we've got a company, you know, of 120 individuals. My wife runs the whole company, and her unique ability is putting together great teams. She just has this phenomenal ability to get teams. And if I attend more than two management meetings a year, I, I call for a investigation, and in why I had to be at those two meetings. I, I'm just not involved in the management of the company, but I can knock out new ideas. You know, I can create new workshops, and I never get tired of it. So I'm freed up from everything. You know, I would say I'm freed up 95. percent uh, I mean, this, you know, having this hour with you is why you have Dan in the company is just to you know to communicate with the outside world. I'm, Really good at marketing. I'm really good at presentation. I'm really good at coaching and everything else. But it's all front stage. Nothing backstage. So what we began to realize, you know, and there's testing. Colby's a good test for this. There's another one called Strength Finder, which is really good. Disc is, you know, disc is kind of a good one for this. There's a new one called Print, uh, which is really good, uh, really good test. And what they show is where your sweet zone is. That when you're in your sweet zone, things come easily. You know, um, you don't get frustrated. And why don't you? I mean, go back to the, the Gary uh, Gary's model. There, that one person should just be giving the other five purpose. Yeah, and it was actually uh, Dave. You know, Dave Osborne. I very well actually. Yeah, Dave was a uh, genius, and he had been in program uh, coach for about a year, and. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I loved his presentation, but he, he uh, was talking about that the first half of his life he found very, very difficult, the first half of his career. And he said, and then there was a shift and it came out of a simple realization that 90% of the most talented people in the world can't give themselves purpose for their talents. But he said, if you're an entrepreneur, that's probably what you're a genius at, is giving a purpose to other people's unique abilities. So he said, why, why, why should you be doing anything else except giving purpose to other people's capabilities? Well, it's so that that sort of explains it. But uh, what he said was very decisive in my thinking about who, not how, and uh, everything. And who, not how, is actually from Dean Jackson. You know, Dean is like the marketing guru. He's like Buddha. He's like a you know marketing Buddha. And we had, um, I told him one day, I said, you know, I've been thinking about procrastination. I said, you know, procrastination is kind of like this dirty, dark secret that everybody keeps hidden from the rest of the world. You're kind of embarrassed. I said, I'm beginning to think that procrastination is a really good thing. And I said, and um, and he says, what? What? How can, I said, I said. For example, you set a goal, and Dean, you know, Dean's a big goal setter. You're a big goal setter. I'm a big goal setter. And you get really, really excited about it. And it's a what. Okay, so the thing is a goal. And then about three minutes later, you get depressed because you just say, well, all the how I have to do, now I have to do all the hows to do it. And you get kind of depressed by it. And I said, don't do that. Your job is to say what the what is and then find the who's who do the what uh dean said this he had a little diagram and he showed it and i said i'm calling my intellectual property lawyer as soon as this lunch is over <laughs> and dean dean wasn't going to do anything with it so i ran with it and it was an instant hit as a matter of fact uh you know we've uh the books i mentioned we've sold uh, you know 100 <laughs> almost two hundred thousand. but i was looking at amazon the other day and and uh and uh, Robert Cialdini, you know the uh, uh, the influence guy, he he was at Genius Network last year, and he said, you know, the sweet spot for a book review on Amazon is between four point two and four point seven. He says five is all fives is just not plausible, and four point uh, below four point two, it's got some it's got some problems. But he said four point so we're about four point six, which is really good. And then I looked at you know how many five stars, four stars. And there was one, one star. And uh, I said, who is this jerk? You know, some jerk. <laughs> <laughs> give me a one one star. And uh, he went down and he said, well, the answer's on the cover. You don't have to read the book. And I said, uh... that's a six star. You know, you should give me a six star. I said, you know, I could have printed just covers and I would have had a bestseller, you know. But the big thing is if you look at how the world really works, you know, you look at high technology, you look at entertainment, it's all who not how. All the great winners are who not how.
1: And, and I wanna I wanna really clarify this for people because I think there are many people listening to this. When they have a goal, the first question they ask is, how can I achieve that? How can I do that? How is the first word. And all this is is a simple shift to who yeah. can do this for me? Who yeah. can do this with me? And it's, I'll tell you just from personal experience as an entrepreneur, you start and you're the only one. You do all everything. Right. It's all how. Well, it low. gets
2: hardwired. It kind of gets huh? hardwired, you know.
1: But I remember Gary saying that the, the mistake is you trick yourself into believing that you're actually good at any of it even though the business gets off the ground. And then you strangle the business versus asking who's the person I can bring in who's extraordinary at this, where I'm mediocre at best. Give them the autonomy to run and free you up to grow it and bring in the next person and the next person. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But you look, I mean, uh, you look at uh, the world of, you know, like people who are, you know, superstars in the spotlight. And I have to tell you, you know, I, I used to have this or, you know, when I we were in the late 80s, um, early, early 90s, I said, you know, Frank Sinatra doesn't move pianos. is <laughs> 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 that the truth? Yeah, no, and I, I said that, but uh, you know, um stars, you know, they've got whole teams that uh, you know, that uh, you know, they, you know, advance people and you know, and everything like that. And you know, it, I remember back, uh, you know, the, the late '70s, and Carter just wasn't the right guy to be president of the United States. And the thing that told me that there was a story that if you were one of his speechwriters or you gave a report to him, the report would come back and it was all marked up in red, and he had changed your, spell, uh, corrected your spelling and your grammar. And I said, you know, I don't think the people of the United States uh, voted for this guy to be. Correcting other people's spelling and grammar. You know, I, I think this is a this is a very, very expensive proofreader you have. <laughs> yeah. You know, and a lot of entrepreneurs are the, at certain moments during the day, are the, you know, they're the uh, the most highly paid secretary in the world, or the they're, they're the most highly paid filer in the world. You know, they're just doing all this crappy stuff and uh and uh, and I think it is it's a uh, it's a bit of cowardice actually that uh, does this that they uh, uh, they won't really bet on themselves because they can always blame it on busyness they're too busy to bet on themselves and I think there's a... mm.
1: I was I was talking to a client this morning They said we're we're just getting started in the engagement and they said I asked what the biggest challenges their people have when it comes to managing their time. And she said, everybody's
2: too busy to focus. Yeah. And I, (laughs) but they're they're actually too busy to be courageous, actually, you know, when you think Mm. about it, you know. And uh, I mean, uh, everything new you do as an entrepreneur, there has to be a period of commitment when you don't have the capability. Okay. And, uh, and you don't have the, I mean, capability is great. Capability feels good, and confidence is the reward for having capability. But when you start anything new, you have neither capability or confidence that lies in the future. So you have to start off with commitment. You, you just have to be committed. And then there's a period, it can be long or it can be short, where you just have to be courageous. Okay. And uh, people say, well, what's the difference between courage and confidence, courage and confidence. I said, uh, confidence feels really good. <laughs> courage doesn't feel good. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. why they call it courage, you know? And the thing is, but you can keep yourself busy so that you don't have to commit and be in a period of courage, you know? And everybody's got, the, everybody's got their own, I mean, you know, everybody's, uh, you know, when you they look at their life, they're brave in some area and not so brave in other areas.
1: Dan, I can see how these two ideas of the gap and the gain, as well as who not how, could actually be synergistic. Do you have an example of someone you're in relationship with where, by living this, not only were they able to actually get into their unique ability, but actually focus more on the gain rather than the gap? Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, if you're, uh, what we notice is that there's a lot of synergy between certain ideas and. You probably find that over a number of years that you come up with this explanation. But they're very synergistic. They actually support each other. So they're like a stack of knowledge or a stack of uh, capabilities. But I remember uh, we had this brilliant guy and he was in the life insurance business, but in a very unique niche. And he had gone off to medical school. I think it might have been Stanford or something like that. And he had all gone all the way through medical school and did everything and then just decided he didn't want to be a doctor. But he had all this medical knowledge. Mm -hmm. So he went into the insurance business, you know, just, you know, as an agent, uh, you know, just for a couple of years to get a feel for, but very quickly he noticed a tremendous weakness in the life insurance industry, and the weakness was that the doctors that the insurance companies use to rate policies you know the, they have to, everybody has to get a physical and the rating comes back were're really mediocre second rate doctors okay and so they had they just worked by formulas I mean there wasn't any really intelligent taking a look case by case and seen any difference so what he created was a second opinion that if you got rejected by a life insurance company he would bring in he had all this um, medical knowledge himself but he knew where the doctors were that he could bring in as heavy guns Mm -hmm. uh, to the case and he was just fabulously successful because we're, we're talking about people who are you know, uh, 70 years old and they're worth $100 million. These are not small premium cases, you know. But, you know, they got something that just wouldn't go through the the robot filter at the insurance company. So he just made an enormous amount of money, you know, because, uh, you know, uh, the insurance agent wouldn't get paid and everything else. So he would get 20% of the, you know, his fees were equal to 20% of the agent's fees which were zero before he came into the case. So anyway, that's, that's just the story. Super Achiever, really tough on himself. Really, really tough on himself. So I did the gap and gain in a workshop. And um, he he just I just saw him. It was like I had hit him in the head with a sledgehammer. And um, didn't, he didn't talk about it. And he came back the next 90 days. Uh, we work on a quarterly basis so that he came back. And he said, I just want to tell you a story. He said, just before you told us about this concept, he said, I was home to see my father and we've had a very difficult relationship. My mother's dead and my siblings are all somewhere else. And we were sitting there and we were at the dinner table and my father was just sitting there like that. And he says, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? He says, about what, dad? He said, you went through four years of high school and you got 39 A's and one B. What were you thinking that you couldn't work a little extra hard and get 40, 48's? 40 He's 40 years old. This happened 22 years previous. And This is what his dad's been mulling for 22 years why he didn't work harder to get that 40th. And he just sat there. He said, <laughs> Dad, you know, I've been really successful in, in spite of that Beat, He says, I graduated from Stanford Medical School. Yeah, but he said, if you just worked harder, I could have told everybody that you're the first student to get 40 A's. So uh, that's just half the story. So it, it wasn't an entirely enjoyable dinner. And <laughs> he's on the way home, and he had to pull off at a, um, you know, uh, just into a parking lot and he sat there and he suddenly realized that he was doing the same thing to his daughter. And, you know, as he went on and uh, you know, that was one capability that he developed the the measuring progress backwards. And you could just see he, you know, and he had stories to talk about, you know, uh, addiction and rehab and everything in his life, you know, which were solutions to the pain he was feeling. And uh, then we got into the unique ability thing. And this was before the, um, uh, you know, before who, not how. I'm talking about something that happened 10 years ago. But he suddenly realized that most of his dissatisfaction with his life is that about 90% of what he did every day, others could do better than him. And the moment he did, then he began to realize That one of the reasons why he was always dissatisfied with his activity because he was mostly doing the wrong activity and it's hard to be satisfied doing the wrong activity. You know, and anyway, so that you see the matchup between the who being in the who and being able to measure correctly backwards about your progress.
1: Yeah, it makes the world of sense. And, And I can only imagine that the moment you're clear not only on what you're destined to do, but it just fills you up. This is what I'm going through right now. I found my who January of this year. The, oh, company's, the company's gonna double this year. And I have just gotten so clear on what are the things that I am the best in the company at doing that light me up. It is black and white. It is so clear. And to realize everything else really should not be on my plate. And yep. now it's Jeff. His name's Jeff. Jeff's job to make sure that that all the team is built to take that off my plate so I get to focus on
2: yeah. what I'm actually great at. Yeah. And when you think about this, I mean, you're 36, you can uh, easily, uh, you know, uh, one of the first things that when uh, clients come into our program, first hour of the program, I said, we have a little exercise, say, at uh, we got a box here, and I just want to write down the age at which you're going to die. Okay. And everybody does it. You know, people I always said people don't know when they're going to die. I've done this with 21,000 people and they all put the number down. So one of them, let's say, that, you know, I say, well, what number did you do? And he said, 85. I said, 85. Let's not talk about 85. Let's talk about 84. So year before, let's say, year year before. How are you physically? Hmm. Great shape. Okay, great shape. Mentally, sharp, um, financially. No, no problems. Uh, relationships great. Um, how you how how you look at the life you've lived so, so far? Really proud. Did everything right. And I said, okay, you're 84. Great shape, mentally sharp, physically, financially well off. Great relationships, and you're proud of your life. What do you think the chances are you die at 85? And he said, oh no, no, I would not die. Well, how how much longer? And they said. 15, 20 years. And I said, which 15 or 20 makes the difference? They said, 20 years. I said, okay. So you've been in the room for an hour and I just bought you 20 years. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now, here's the thing about this. I started this in the early 90s and it was a nice thinking process. We just came off a five minute, uh, five day longevity trip with Peter Diamandis. And we went to Boston and New York, and we had 30 scientists come in. And this stuff is real, five years. Well, I'll tell you, Jeff, I started really looking at this about 10 years ago. And I'm 77, but my physical age is 64. Hmm. Okay, I match up with 64-year-olds, 70s. But when I started, I was a 69-year-old who had a physical age of 70. So I've reversed it six years as I've aged. And that's just doing normal stuff like really great aerobic exercise and lifting exercises and getting eight hours sleep and uh, you know supplements for certain shortcomings and everything like that. The stuff that's coming down the road that we saw in five years, you'll, you, everybody will be able to. So I have a goal when I get to hundred, I'm my physical age is fifty. So uh-huh. chronologically, hundred but uh, but the thing that I'm talking, I want to match this up with the gap in the game, that if you are never happy with um, if you're never happy with your success and uh, you're always doing activities that you hate doing, uh, you want to retire as fast as you can. you know what I mean, you don't want you don't want to keep being an entrepreneur, you don't want to go on with this misery of never being happy with your success and always being unhappy with the work you're doing, you want to get out of here, you know? But what if um, you're always feeling more and more successful and more ambitious? And not only that, but you just love that you just get to do with it. When do you want to stop the game with that? Never. Never. <laughs> I mean, there probably is a stop, but uh, don't give death any assistance, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, Dan so where- that's the, that's another one of our concepts, and this is this. Uh, I have to tell you, I just saw miracles, and they're in the you know third stage clinical trials. There's massive amounts of money. I mean, I'm not talking billions. There's trillions of dollars. This is the number one industry in the world over the next fifty years. You know, and the reason is that, uh, given a choice, everybody wants to feel younger and live longer. I love it. Dan, where can people learn more about you as well as the books? Yeah, it's just strategiccoach.com. and uh, you know we've got tons of really great um, testimonial stories on it, and uh, uh, you know we have a lot of lot of small concept books. There's a lot of I have ten podcast series that I do. So anyway, and uh, I'm busy. I mean, I, you know, I'm. You know, I'm 77 and top of my game. So, yeah. And I would say this, that I think that the, the business that you and I are in is uh, is the number one business in the world uh, in the way that management, I think, was the number one business for the 20th century. I think coaching is the number one business for the 21st century. Coaching in everything, every conceivable area of life. So the business that, bo- I mean, this is an unlimited, I mean, people say, you know, you know, you're really getting to be a powerful coaching force in the world and strategic coach. I said, I, I tell you, if I had one, I, if I had one hundredth of 1% of the market potential, I said, I, we'd be a hundred times bigger right now. This is so big. I said, uh, you know, and uh, and it's what people want. People don't want to be managed. That's why we got 10 million job openings in the United States that can't be filled. The, uh, people were too busy to know how bad those jobs were. And then they were gave them a year to think about. And they said, never going back to the, you know, just crappy, crappy bosses, crappy jobs, crappy you know, environment, crappy one hour commute each way, crappy everything, crappy pay and everything else. No, no thanks. You yeah. know, so, so, you know, I mean, I think that uh, in two years, the buyer seat has moved from employers to employees.
1: Thanks for listening to The One Thing Podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business, visit theonething.com. There, you'll find information on -on one-on-one coaching, our exclusive community membership program, and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T-H-E, the number one, dot com to start living the life you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing.com. We'll see you next week.